Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Why is diversity so important? And really what can be done right, for organizations to take this a lot more seriously and maybe even use it to their competitive advantage? So maybe Nuru, you would like to go first? So I do want to push back a bit on this question because I feel like when we say let's not do diversity at face value, there are two things that we're looking at. So firstly, obviously there's something called diversity washing, right? But it's like it's like greenwashing, pink washing, any kind of whatever washing where you're not actually committing to change, you're just making very surface level changes. But I would say that a lot of the ways that people criticize diversity initiatives are not necessarily valid. For example, if you're improving your representation in visual examples of, you know, like, like who, who, who's in your company, who should be your customers and these kinds of things, that's still one step forward. It's still saying, I recognize that I should not just be having one kind of person in my advertising. So that's one step forward. And then that actually brings up the, the larger question, which is that diversity is a journey, right? So you have everyone be at an imperfect stage of their diversity journey. How do you get them to the next stage? So if you're a company where you did not know this word diversity, you did not believe in it, it's not something you considered, your first acts may look like face value or diversity washing, but that could then be actual change later on if you are committed to learning and to changing. For companies that already know they, they know what they should do better. They're, they know that they should improve hiring. Look at who's actually being part of the company. How do we improve results? Look at retention. Then the question is, do they have the ability and the strong value system to commit? And then that's a different question. So that's saying, you are, if you know and you're not doing it, then that's a very different problem. So I think we've got to talk about this in, at every stage. I do think that organizations need to understand and need to, to realize that as, as companies, as economic actors, you don't just act and impact economics. You're impacting the lives of the people that you hire. You're, you're impacting the lives of your consumers. So you don't just have an economic purpose. You should really think about what is the good that you're doing at every level and how can you do better. And to everyone, not just your employees, not just your consumers, push it further. What about your vendors? What about, on a, okay, on a very basic level, for a lot of startups, you're incubated in a space that has an office that's not cleaned by someone you hire. It's cleaned by an external cleaning company. Your pantry is not stocked by an auntie that's hired by you, right? But do you know if she's being paid fairly? Does she have to pay for her own like uniforms and things like that? Is there something you can do as someone that benefits from her services in order to get the success you need to actually make sure that that goes back to the people that are helping you and amplify that at every level? Mm. So I'll, I'll go into a bit more detail later, right? How do we inculcate a more bottom-up uh, approach? But Jeremy, what are, what are your views on this? on diversity and it. I mean, from a, from a VC's head also, right? Because you work with so many companies, you've invested in so many founders all across the region, right? 
You know, I think the interesting reality is that, you know, diversity and inclusion, you know, means different things to different people. And, you know, I always think about, you know, as a history nerd, I think about Southeast Asia has been at a crossroads between, you can say, East and West. You can look at the archipelago um, and the different cultures. And it's been this melting pot for you know, thousands of years, right? You know, I mean, there are coins today being found today here from thousands of years ago from different cultures, right? On different times. And so, you know, I think what we define as, you know, the in-group and what's the out-group has varied over time. And the truth is, you know, even in Singapore, whoever we def define as the in-group or the out-group can look very different as, you know, 30 minutes going one direction or, or going to a different country. And so, I think I often boil it down to very much like, you know, how would you like to be treated if you just traveled across the border, right? How would you like to be treated if you entered a different situation, if you are the out-group? And conversely, if you are the out-group and now the in-group, how does that show up in your own life? And I think what we want to do is have that fundamental fairness at the end of the day, because, you know, that is the human and the right thing to do. Um, and I think that's really the crux that is not only recognizable at the founder level, but also fundamentally recognized and uh, rhymes with the people who are choosing to be your teammate and colleague, with the customers who are choosing your services across so many services, um, and your stakeholders, right, uh, who recognize that not necessarily in the short term, but over the medium and long term. So uh, at the end of the day, um, I think it's the right thing to do. I think it resonates with your stakeholders and employees. And the truth is, once we you know, expand the circle to just Southeast Asia with all the cultures, all the different identities that we've seen, um, I think it's really important to just do the fair thing and treat others the way we want others to treat us. Mm -hmm. I think fair point, right? Like there's, there's also a lot of data out there showing that uh, such policies help. But if we were to say, okay, let's say the ecosystem stakeholders, or at least the people in the, uh, the decision-making environment. So if you look at startup ecosystem, right, you've got founders, you've also got the venture capitalists, where they are the ones, uh, uh, you know, giving out capital. Uh, so they have a large uh, um, influence or opportunity in, in promoting diversity and inclusion. Then you've got government policies and programs, right, with respect to how certain grants or schemes are distributed. And then you've also got people. Uh, how do we start this process, right, of really encouraging the stakeholders uh, to take diversity and in inclusion, incorporate that into their policies? Does it need to be a top-down thing? Like, does, the, does it have to be a, a CX-level thing? Can it be a bottom-up thing? How would we start that entire process across the, the ecosystem? So when we say bottom-up, we're really looking at, you know, individuals acting in their own capacity. And I think that is, that is valid and that's powerful as a reflection of what the reality is on the ground. But I want to push back again, and, and you know, it's going to have a lot of pushback, so just be prepared. Um, but one of the things that we want to rethink is the idea that it's the people who are most impacted by inequalities that should be the ones to make that change. That's fundamentally not understanding what equality should be. Like, we all agree equality is good, right? I mean, I'm assuming, okay? We all agree equality is good. Because of that, we agree diversity is good. Then, if we agree on these two things, why do we push the responsibility to create things that are more equal and more diverse on the people that 
arguably have the least time, energy, power, and you know, uh, uh, and any capacity to make that change. Why shouldn't this actually be something that you report in your annual report and that you should be proud to talk about? And you should be really recognizing your mistakes. If you had a bad loan or you had a bad year and you had a bad sales, you're just going to say, okay, this is what happened. We're sorry, this is how we're going to fix it. Why don't we take this attitude for something that is clearly a moral good and take that responsibility to say, look, we haven't done that well but we're going to do it differently. So I think it's not about who is supposed to take the responsibility. It's why aren't people already taking the responsibility? And then being very specific and be like, tell me why. What part of this is difficult for you? Right? And then let's figure out how to make that change. We know it's important. I don't think it's a lack of understanding of that diversity is important. I think it's a lack of willingness to commit to concrete actions that may or may not have an immediate financial benefit. So let me push this one level further. Like, I mean, we have a VC and startup audience in the crowd, right? So would, I would, if I were to uh, follow on on the suggestion, right, what you're saying is for VCs to, in their, maybe in their, the, the reports that they get from the startups, to not just get the highs and lows from the companies, but also things like diversity, inclusion uh, efforts and initiatives, and how are they scoring on that? Is that something that you think would be the right step forward for startups to be reporting that to their investors? Yeah, because clearly that could be a high or a low. And I've worked with Accelerating Asia, which is also a, a VC, and they do have, they have a gender advisory board, which I'm on. They, it's, it's something that they look at, like, you know, it's not just... It's not just female founders, which is the next step, which is a valid step, but it's also more than that. When you're creating this company, you're, you're a founder, you're creating a startup, you know it, you love it, you think it's good. But who is it good for? And then what's next? How do you make sure the people that are being negatively impacted by it, and there are definitely people who will be, how do you mitigate that? Within your own company, who are the people that are benefiting more from it? It's not... When you lead your company, you're not just leading your profit or loss statement. You're leading people. You're leading results. And in this environment, in, you know, in Singapore, in our economy, in the region, we need to think more about these things. Mm -hmm. Now, Jeremy, on the, on the venture side, fundamentally, it's all about returns, right? It, 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 funds are going to be judged based on that. Right? Uh, how can diversity and inclusion become a larger part of that discussion? Should LP start taking a heavier stand? Right? Uh, should VC start start uh, 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 reporting on a larger level? I mean, some funds have also started like uh, uh, more like okay, women-centric funds or certain diversity inclusion funds. Do you think that's the, the right step? So, multiple themes over here, right? But really, on the venture side, right? How how can this be a bit more impactful? The fundamental role um, of entrepreneurship is creating something new. Um, and something new because the world is changing, the reality is changing, and people's needs need to be solved faster, smoother, more cheaply, more convenient. Um, and venture capital is about supporting founders to achieve those changes. Because I can tell you that my great-grandparents, you know, they set up a little you know, shop house with no capital, uh, borrowing money from family, right, and savings. Um, and that was not very long ago, right? And so today, I think we ask founders to do way more tremendous things than just a shop house, right? Um, and in return, we provide the capital to support them on that journey, right? To allow them to be able to grow the company, to be able to eat, 
um, and not take on that personal risk on a personal basis. And where that boils down to at the end of the day is, and I love this phrase all the time, is that you know, talent is equally distributed, opportunity is not. And what it means by that is, yes, um, we are still in the fundamental core supporting exceptional founders and exceptional founders should come from everywhere. And the commercial way of looking at it is if you're not looking for that talent in places that are not as visible, then you're missing out commercially. I think that's the most transactional way to look at it. Another way of looking at it is, is the right thing to do because everybody needs support, needs help, and so, so forth. And when technology is built by certain in-groups, then we end up in a situation where it's all built around those core assumptions, which are fundamentally not in the spirit of entrepreneurship, not in the spirit of innovation, and not in the spirit of the future that we're trying to build. Because today, this year, we are living in the future that our parents built, our grandparents dreamt of, and our great-grandparents had no idea could ever happen. Um, and that future that we are living in today, with all of us around this room sharing this topic, will be the base and foundation for our children, for our grandchildren. Um, and I think that's what, I think we all have fundamental responsibility. And I think that starts with, you know, with founders being recognized wherever they are and venture capital supporting and innovating and making sure to push forward on that whatever format that happens to be. Mm. Can, can this responsibility be further uh, uh, cemented in a way where uh, there's an expectation from stakeholders to have it as opposed to putting the onus on a, uh, on a level where it's just, okay, it's something it's, that's nice to do or good to do, right? Like, like, I mean, if I, were to, if I were to use fitness as an example in, in our Singaporean culture, right? Like, growing up, you have to take the NAPFA test and it's literally on your right, record book, right? How well you did. And it's in your face that, hey, look, take uh, your health and fitness seriously. Uh, it, it, is, is there a way, do you all think, right, that the government or, or, or organisations, right, can do that in a more structured manner so it's not made to feel like, oh, this is a nice to do, but something that you should really, really be focusing on. Can there be a framework around this that can be set up? For context, did you enjoy your NAFA test? I did not. I was a fat kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was made to go to for tough clubs. So no, I did not enjoy it. Yeah, because then that's the problem, right? People are going to be like, oh, I hate the NAFA test. Like, I don't want to go. I also hate the NAFA test. Yeah. Uh, not enthusiastic. Do I think it's a responsibility and it should be measured in more concrete ways? Yes. Do I think I have a perfect answer for you as to how that can be done? No. I don't think there will be. Because going back to the idea that diversity is a journey, anything that we create now will only measure and look at a certain part of the journey. And it will need then to keep improving as we move on and as we try and bring more organisations and society and everyone else further along their journey. So I think that's, going, that's quite difficult. But there definitely can be a lot more done to normalise and encourage the presentation of really these difficult questions about diversity, equity and inclusion for all parts of the startup process. And that's, that's, it, it's, a, it's a good question. I don't have a clear answer for you. Yeah. I'm always a supportive uh, of you know, organisations systemizing the aspirations of their employees and stakeholders. And you know, I think that is 
a responsibility of employees and leaders to ask for that. Um, and I think it is also the responsibility of the leadership to say, hey, this is the balanced scorecard that measures what our aspirations are as a company, not just economic, not just financial, but also on the human and societal responsibilities. Um, I think we've also seen the rise of you know, ESG, um, which is a tremendous amount of uh, work, I think, done by limited partners and capital allocators out there who are requesting venture capitalists or actually requiring um, disclosures around what are the possible upsides in terms of how they apply to the uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, as well as being aware and disclosing the risks or potential downsides of technological change uh, that's there. And that's honestly the step in the right direction. I think there has been some pushback, I think recently, about the exact format, uh, as you said, you know, greenwashing or so whatever washing. But I'm always like, you know, would you rather go back 10 years and not have those things? I'd rather have those and for us to continue measuring, continue improving. Um, and even today, I can tell you right now, like when we do venture capital investments, at least at, at our organization, we do look at, you know, filling out our ESG uh, and evaluating how it's going to create jobs, save lives, improve environmental quality, and so, so forth. Um, and I think it's a relief, honestly, because you do it and you're just like, oh, this is even better than I thought, right? You know, that this is, you know, this is the story and this is the journey that all of us can sign up on, right? Um, and at the end of the day, in terms of investment process, it ends up helping us exclude those that we don't feel contribute to the future that we all want to live in, but also helps build the future that we want to build in. Um, so that can be replicated not just at VCs, but also at startups, large organizations, uh, even you know, hobby groups. You know, there's so many organizations where we just can do it. So the, the, so the last question also in a way, right, was in, in context to things like ESG, yeah, climate scoring, like, you know, next year, next year organizations know there's going to be a carbon tax coming and all that, right? So, and, and, and now there are very clearly defined frameworks, scorecards, metrics that you can use to, to compare yourself, right? I, I guess the challenge with uh, diversity and inclusion is that it, it, it revolves around people. And the last thing you want to do is put metrics and measurements around people and, and all that, which just complicates the, the, the entire situation, right? So I think that's the part where I was trying to figure out, can... But we do measure people. Yeah. Even if it's just a performance review, even if it's just numbers and hiring and growth, how many people got laid off? I think we do measure people. And one thing that I think is very dangerous is for us to actually think that we cannot measure some of these achievements because... And, and I guess it's, it's, it might be a, separate, a slightly separate point, but ESG and diversity are not two separate pieces of the puzzle to try and make things better. They are part of the same piece. For many places in the world, including, I believe, Singapore, a lot of these impacts are interrelated. A lot of these impacts, when it, comes to, when it comes to the environment, when it comes to sustainability, they don't always impact everyone equally. There are different groups of people that will be disproportionately impacted by certain environmental factors. That's a fact. So if we look at, okay, we can do ESG because we can measure like carbon offsets. We're also not looking at what is the cost to people. If we just look at people from you know, a non-ESG standpoint, we're not looking at the full picture. So we need to look at all these things as part of the same picture, which is that if we want to create economic good, what is the cost 
for us in whatever way? Is it social? Is it environmental? Is it political? Like, what are the costs for us? And that's real. So when we look at diversity, diversity is not fluffy. Diversity can be measured. If I were to go up to any startup founder, right, and if I asked you the question, do you know how many women you hired in the last month? And you can't tell me, that's your problem, right? And that's something you need to measure. Then if we look at it one step further, and I ask you, compared to the lowest paid person on your team, how many times of that are you taking home in terms of your pay? That's something you should know too. Because that's your responsibility as a founder. That's your responsibility for diversity. And that is numerical. So if you give me a number where you're like, okay, you know, everyone on, in my organization, we've got 10 people, we're all getting paid, you know, differential of like maybe 20% between top and bottom. That's very different from your saying, actually differential between top and bottom, even though it's 10 people, is like 200 times. You can measure that, that's, that's equality. If you're like, I have, a, I have a team of 300 people and two of them are women, that's a problem. Especially if one of the women is you. Okay? So I think that we need to really be very clear that the diversity, equity, and inclusion piece is not fluffy. It's real. It's numbers, it's numerical, it impacts things in real life. Just because it's about people, right? doesn't mean it's more difficult to measure. It means we're not asking the right questions as to what it is we're measuring. I think we need to think about that. So one of the questions that we look at when it comes to, for example, how long do women stay in the workforce and why do they leave? You're looking at not just measuring how many women are there in your workforce at a specific point in time, but what is your turnover rate? When do women leave? What is your attrition rate? What is your attrition rate over time? So it's just asking different questions. So I really strongly disagree with this idea that any part of this is fluffy because it's not. And people are not fluffy. We're actual real people. So it's not imaginary. The effects are not imaginary. So it's, it's there. We just really have to ask the right questions. So in the last few years at least, right, I mean, with the, with the, the, pandem the pandemic environment shifted the idea of like hiring and, and, and all of that, right? So in the last few years, has the diversity inclusion issue been, become worse or has it actually become better? And, and this is on both sides, so from, a, from a, like a people side, right? And I'll, I'll probably ask this to you from an investment side, right? In your view, has it gotten better or worse? Is it in the right direction or do you feel like it's gotten downward and we need to do more, a lot more work? I think that some organizations have done better. So some organizations have committed to, you know, like uh, no work from office, which is great. Um, no, you know, like more flexible hours, hiring people more remotely, better benefits. But a lot of people have not. And a lot of people have genuinely made enormous profits of what was suffering. And we've not really rewarded the people that were on the front lines of that. Like, and that's everyone from the frontline healthcare workers to the grab drivers that are sending you, like, you know, I really need Panadol right now. And it's all the people that we, that were part of this environment, not all of us benefited equally. And that really worries me because I'm very concerned that we've come out of a pandemic where we had to face our own mortality, each of us, because none of us really were spared. But what we have left with is not necessarily a commitment to making things better. That a lot of us are still doing things in the same way or the worst or a worse way, 
Not everyone, of course. There are a lot of organizations, a lot of people that are not doing enough and that should be doing more because as a society, as a community, as a nation, as a region and as a, like, honestly, on a global scale, we cannot continue to have this enormous unequal divide between people. If we each really face this global issue, um, you know, where, where, you know, different groups of people died at different rates, different groups of people were vaccinated at different rates, we need to then say this, like a lot of the issues that came up um, globally, they will happen again. How do we build better and not just go back and say, okay, we did enough. Like, you know, we clap. Like, thank you very much. You know, like whoever, nurses or whoever. Like, that's not enough. What is an actual next step? As, as a startup founder, as a person, how do we actually build that so that we create more equal communities, more equal societies? Because that's creating a more resilient ecosystem. And then on the, on the venture side, has it got better at all? I mean, they are, sure, there are a bit more women-led funds and all that, right? But are they just like, like token kind of things or has there been significant improvements? I think there has been significant improvement uh, over time, especially in the recognition of the problem and the search for it. Uh, I think the search for representation on investor teams has never been higher. It can and should improve over time. Um, and I think that's one way to look at it. Um, I think that... You know, as you shared, Nurul, I think the past few years has been uh, tremendously painful. Um, and I think we cannot underestimate the actual human and medical cost, right, of this, right? You know, the truth is, you know, if you have more privileged or well-off or had more access, you're alive. <laughs> Not just better off, but you get to be alive, right? Um, and I think there's a tremendous human cost that, is invisible because they don't vote, they, don't, they can't vote anymore, they can't be present anymore, and they can't speak anymore, right? Where I think the, I think one small benefit um, over time, a trend, has really, I think, that startups and entrepreneurs have really led the way from remote work and work from anywhere. Um, I think that uh, it has unlocked a certain set of paradigms around in-person and certain transactions that had happened in person that really affected, for example, parents who had caregiving responsibilities, which disproportionately fell on women uh, in Southeast Asia. But it also allowed for uh, people to access roles from all across the region, uh, where maybe because they live further away from the business district like within Singapore or in different countries, right? And I think. I'm not saying it's the full ingredient for everything, but I think it's one ingredient that combined with leadership from the teams and from venture capitalists, uh, I think can make this a more equitable place uh, over the next 10 years. Okay, I want to spend the last uh, few few minutes for the session, right, discussing actionable next steps, right? So we let's put it into three hats, right? So we've got the, the investor hat or the venture, the VC investor hat. Uh, we've got the founder hat. Uh, or, or the executive level head, and we've got the employee head, right? So within this room, right, as a ne key next step, right, what can people start to to do? Are there are there are there books they can? They, is there a particular book, a framework? Uh, how can they kind of say let's let's take diversity and inclusion seriously? Let's uh, kind of come up with a framework to uh, uh, measure this, and how can we come up with a six months plan to start maybe improving this entire process? What 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 is the key next steps that they can start doing? I would like to have a framework, I'll sell it to you all. Um, I don't have a framework, so I can't sell it to you all. Um, I do think that from, so I'm going to speak from the employee perspective and then the founder perspective. I think from the employee perspective, it depends where you're at. But as an employee, it's important to 
take responsibility on the kind of environment you're building and the kind of thing that you're seeing. So what, by this, I mean, if you are an underrepresented employee and you feel like there is a gap within the workplace when it comes to your capability, your achievements and where you want to be, then for you to, to recognize that and address that will often take the, the brave step of speaking to someone about it, looking for options outside and really committing to the slightly risky move of deciding, well, maybe this is not a place for me. Can I go somewhere else? So I think for employees, it's that. If you're an employee that's not underrepresented, you've, you know, you, you're in a place you're comfortable, you're doing well, then I think the question is, how do I make someone feel and do better where they're at? How do I create a place that's better and more welcoming for everyone? Okay. So that's an example. Sorry, so, just, so it's more like cultural, day-to-day -day interaction kind of things that you're talking about right now, right? For employees, yeah. yes. For the founder perspective, I think a very simple next step is really just having data and looking at it. And I think a lot of that is really looking at um, customers and customer demographic breakdown. It's looking at employees and employee demographic breakdown. So once you have that and you are looking at that, I can guarantee you that it's going to be a problem. Right? Almost everyone will have an issue where they're not performing where they should be. And then how do you move whatever resources you need to move to improve that part? So I think that's, that's quite a good thing. I believe that for founders, you have access to that data mm. and that's where you should start moving. Okay. Great. Jeremy, anything you have to say? You know, I love reading science fiction. Um, and growing up, you know, I love reading and I think it represented, I think, a very in retrospect, a European or Western or American male perspective, you know, the greats like Isaac Asimov and, you know, you talk about the Ender series and so on and so forth. Um, and I think what I've really enjoyed over the past three years has been reading much more diverse science fiction. Uh, so, for example, from, you know, for example, like Liu Singh on the Wandering Earth series to, you know, the, the Murder Bot series, which is, um, and a whole bunch of different series that are by female, uh, by African authors, uh, by different um, groups, because I think it just lets your mindset free and kind of wander away from what do we solve today, what do we solve tomorrow, but what could that future, you know, a hundred, a thousand years could be. Um, and, you know, I was watching, you know, for example, Star Wars, um, and, you know, there was like The Mandalorian and Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I was just mind blown because I, I felt like there was something different about the way it was done, it was so fresh. And I realized very quickly that it was actually being shot by, you know, Bryce Dallas Howard and Deborah Wong. And these were the first two female directors that ever shot any Star Wars uh, content. And so they had that very deep, you know, real perspective um, that obviously I enjoyed as a reader because it's fresh, but also I think helped me um, break a lot of those paradigms about what that future looks like. And so I think that's a great way to, um, you know, be part of the future because if we're here, we love technology, we love the future. And I think that's a great way is to kind of broaden that reading on the fiction side because I think they get to explore these new, you know, crazy ideas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, changing your, your, your entire consumption habit yeah, will definitely change your perspective. I think this has been a, a tremendously good uh, learning session for me. I hope it has been for all of you. I hope all of you take away the, the very important urgent need for a serious look at diversity and inclusion in all of your organizations. And please join me in thanking the, the panelists for this session. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues.
Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.